Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Amanda Kadlik, and we're and she is a uh, RAND analyst focusing on the Middle East and North Africa, and we are discussing um, the U.S.'s Africa policy. So the reason we wanted to have this show and and have shows on Africa is because um, it, it, it's something that doesn't receive a lot of attention. I think a few months ago when um, we had that incident with special operations soldiers in North Africa in uh, Niger, um, it it was kind of shocking to me that on Twitter, like regular people on Twitter were sort of shocked that, oh, we have soldiers in North Africa, we have this huge presence. And then um, when you dig deeper, it's it's a very complex and, and nuanced uh, policy. Um, and in addition to the, the U.S.'s policy, we also um, will be thinking about um, sort of the great power politics, so-called great power politics that surround the continent that involve China, Russia, France, and sort of, you know, how they behave in relation to the United States. So please welcome Amanda Cadillac for me. I want to <clears throat> start off with a very basic question, and that is, um, give us an overview of what you what you consider and what you think of U.S. policy to be towards Africa. Is it, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm sort of creating the same, like a typical mistake, but, you know, Africa is this broad continent, um, and, you know, when it comes up in policy, how is it dealt with? Uh, good question. Um, like you said, Africa is a continent. So the only thing that I feel comfortable speaking to is policy on North Africa. Um, um, and even within the United States government, with the diff- between the different agencies, there's each agency approaches it in a different way. So the DOD, for example... Uh, considers Egypt as part of the Middle East CENTCOM region, and State Department sees it as all of North Africa plus the Middle East region. So every agency sees it, identifies North Africa, even just North Africa in different terms. But there's, and for the DOD, it's all of, it's just AFRICOM Africa. So North Africa for the State Department is part of the Middle East, and for the DOD, uh, all of North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa are one thing. So, you know, it, that makes things interesting, I guess, just in terms of how the U.S. government is split on how to define Africa. Um, in terms of policy, uh, it. You know, before we, t- we we started recording, you had asked me um, what the difference is between the Obama administration and the Trump administration in terms of Africa policy. Um, with regard to North Africa, which is, you know, I, I can't speak to sub-Saharan Africa so, mu- so much, but with regard to North Africa, it's, you know, we were only one year into the Trump administration, so it's still a little bit difficult to see or, you know, to be able to discern what the Trump administration is seeking to accomplish in Africa, in North Africa. For the moment, it doesn't really seem that much different, um, given the policy directives that the Obama administration put in place and the ones that are still in place that that the Trump administration is piggybacking off of. Um, so does that answer your question, at least the first part of it, I hope? <laughs> 
Yeah. So I want to maybe we can zoom in on North Africa and sort of, um, you know, do we consider that, you know, what are, let's start off with a basic question again. You know, what are the sort of, you know, core set of problems, you know, in this region? You know, I, I think off the top of my head, it's, you know, migration into Europe, um, it's sort of state building in Libya and sort of, you know, the, the results of the Arab Spring in Tunisia. So um, when it comes to this region, you know, how do we, you know, what are the, what is the core set of problems that we should be thinking about? So up to now, well, there are two ways to look at this. There's the country by country way of looking at it and then the issue way of looking at it. So on the country level, we've got Libya where we have, you know, which essentially has been a civil war. It's been a low-level civil war. It's not, you know, it's been isolated to certain areas, um, you know, intense fighting. But it, in my opinion, qualifies as a civil war. So there's been a civil war there for almost four years now. Uh, no political resolution in sight. I mean, elections are coming up, but those might make actually make things worse than better. So there's the Libya at this country level, uh, Libya is an issue. Then Tunisia, with I don't, if, I don't know if you've been following for the last week, there were um, there was a show of protests and then a show of force by security services, um, arresting journalists and and cracking down. And that I think sent fear, I guess, or concern, you know, but overdue concern that you know Tunisia isn't the shining star success story that everyone thought it was or would be. Um, but that's, you know, open for the bait. So there's the Libya at state level, Tunisia at the state level. Um, then if we want to look at Egypt, which is, you know, technically part of CENTCOM, but part of the State Department's view of North Africa and the Middle East, um, Egypt is not doing well. Um, and there's, you know, the leadership under CC, I think we're all very familiar, is... Uh, taking a turn for the worse and for you know, toward a, a darker side. Um, and then Algeria, looking at the, the country level, and this is also open for debate. Some scholars will say it's stable. Some will say it's imploding from within at a very uh, slow but steady pace. Um, and then there's Mali, Niger, Chad, um, the, the poorer Sahel countries. Mali, the government, is not in control. Um, uh, Niger, as we know, uh, not, not particularly stable, but, um, more stable than its neighbor and Chad also considered to be stable, but the president there is, has been in power for 25 years. Um, he's getting up in age and eventually there will be some kind of transition of power that might not necessarily be stable. Um, that could create uh, knock-on effects or second and third order effects uh, following his departure. So at the country level, things are not looking good. Um, and then, you know, at the, the state political level and economic level, poverty is certainly still very persistent across the region. Um, and then there are the issues, like you mentioned. So at the issue level, there's, there's mass migration, there is... Uh, weapons and drug trade, there is economic stagnation, uh, there is uh, 
you know, violence, so, you know, and, and civil war or conflict, and, and no matter where you look. Uh, Boko Haram, uh, jihadist actors uh, like Boko Haram and others. So there are all of these issues that are, are, are outstanding or salient in the region that, that the U.S. and European actors are trying to um, mitigate. Um, and then at the state level, um, that's usually or typically historically is how we've looked at these issues is we'll say, okay, well, there are these problems in Niger, so let's create a policy that focuses on Niger or a policy that focuses on Mali. That started to change around the mid-2000s when, or the early 2000s when the United States uh, implemented the Pan-Sahel Initiative, which then later became the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership. After the fall of, uh, or the problems that Mali had in 2012 and 2013 with a takeover by jihadist actors in the north, um, once that happened, the French got on that bandwagon, like the Sahel region bandwagon, I guess you could say, and sought to create the G5 Sahel force, which is, it, it sort of conceptually falls along the same lines of having a regional initiative in addition to the sort of state-level um, policy directives. Interesting. So then, you know, to circle back, when we think about the State Department and DOD, mm-hmm. are, they, are they on the same page when it comes to policy, or is it, you know, DOD tends to view this region through the lens of counterterrorism, and CVE, whereas the State Department would view it through, I, I guess, diplomacy, democracy, promotion, aid, or, you know, is DOD and, and Department of State sort of working in, in tandem and hand-in-hand hand together? So um, there's definitely a tendency for, you know, the Department of Defense to focus more on the hard security objectives, but with regard to North Africa... Um, the State Department is very much involved in counterterrorism efforts there and countering violent extremism programs uh, and, uh, you know, countering violent extremism messaging, those kinds of, I guess, what would fall into the softer category. But, no, the DOD and state work together on, with, specifically with regard to the Trans-Air Counterterrorism Partnership. They work together and share funding streams. So they have to they have to work together on those things, but um, you know even though there's usually and you know part you know part of the TSCTP is the idea was to create a whole of government approach to security cooperation in the region, which included things like democracy promotion and you know messaging campaigns and things like that, economic development. Um, and, and those things are all well and good, and I, con- conceptually, it is absolutely the right way to go. The problem is it's th- the impact of those things is div- difficult to measure, and usually, um, you know, back at home in U.S. government, they, the powers that be want to know what kind of impact the spending of those funds is getting. So um, and the problem is 
with whole of government approach to security cooperation, the effects of those things might not be visible for a couple of decades. So sometimes, you know, after thing, you know, projects or uh, programs have been implemented, it's not possible to see after those three or four years of, of whole of government approach if it's actually been successful or not. In some cases, you know, there has been shown that, that certain programs and initiatives are effective. Um, but the concept of the whole of government approach to security cooperation usually is eclipsed by the harder or the tension toward and focus toward these more, more hard security cooperation objectives like training forces, flintlock exercises, um, um, you know, any kind of military training, intelligence cooperation, and all those things. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's ideally and conceptually, it's, it, over the past 10 years, that has actually been sort of a breakthrough in how we see security cooperation, but it has always sort of defaulted back to the harder security stuff. So then when we talk about um, security cooperation and security assistance, what mm-hmm. what are we specifically talking about? Is it a matter of uh, training and assist? Is it a matter of um, you know loaning or using um, more technical intelligence methods, drones, satellites, whatever, whatever is obviously not available to the host nation? Um, but you know what are how are we defining this? Because I think um, when the Niger story broke, it was it seemed like, you know, the characterization, at least the public characterization, was the, these operators, these special forces soldiers were in the field, and it, not only were they training, but it, it seemed like they were actively involved in in operations, in in shooting, to, to maybe use a simplified verb here. But, I mean, how do we, how do we characterize this cooperation? Um, well, so the, that gets tricky because I don't know. I have, you know, I don't have the kind of information that that some people do, and it's a sensitive topic right now. And I, I don't think that the Department of Defense has come out with any kind of um, concrete, definitive statement as to what has happened. They're still investigating, so I can't really comment on on that part. Um, but there definitely is concern that. And this has been a running concern with programs like the TSCTP and others that the forces that we're seeking to train or, or trying to train aren't don't have the absorptive capacity to be able to uh, benefit from the training, um, or they don't have the absorptive capacity to be even. So it's sort of like if we give if the United States gives. Um, Niger, the Niger Special Forces, or Niger military weapons or training, will they will they be even be able to use it in a way that that the United States hopes it will? So you know, it, it, Niger could be an example. Let's use another example, like Chad. We could say, well, we're we're training Chad's um, special force, uh, but is well, you know another problem that comes along with that is human rights. So we might be tra- training Chad's special forces, but is it inflicting uh, 
you know, pain and terror on it, on Chad's people, on the people of Chad. So, um, you know, that's another issue. It's, I sort of got off track there, but there are, what I'm trying to get at is that there, with the funding that the United States gives North African countries to be able to, let me put it another way. The idea of these kinds of training mechanisms is that the force that we're we're training will be able to carry out the mission that we want it to, which includes all kinds of things. It includes actually going out into the field and doing the things that we wanted to do on hard security measures and by adhering to human rights standards and by spending money in a way that we we hope that they would spend it in a transparent way. there's a whole bucket of expectations uh, that the United States has of these different countries and the, the governments that, that run their militaries. Um, there has been a persistent concern since the arrival of these kinds of programs like the TSCTP that those, that those outcomes are not, um, those, those, those expectations aren't reasonable, that they're not realistic. So um, I think that with, hap- with what happened in Niger, there is absolutely concern that, and depending on how the, the, the story ends up coming out, um, and with, particularly with regard to the conflicting accounts um, uh, of, of what actually happened, you know, it's, totally, it's a totally reasonable concern that the training that we're giving or the weapons that we're offering um, the whole comprehensive package isn't going to actually deliver what the United States hopes it will, and that you know the U.S. soldiers will end up having to do the work, you know, in 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 lieu of their inability to do so. So then, I want to maybe um, take a step back and look at the region, and then specifically, like, how do we, when we think about this region, how do we work in? Um, other nation states. So, for instance, I think we've already touched on France, but how do we work in Russia? And then I think I think the most famous sort of example is China. I think it's mm-hmm. almost China and Africa almost seems to be a meme at this point. But um, mm-hmm. so, sort of, how do we work in these other sort of you know larger powers into um, North Africa policy? Ooh, that is a really big question, and I I can't answer that. I would need some time to prepare in terms of because I I don't know China policy. I know tangentially some things about Russia because of its increased involvement in North Africa, but with regard to how we you know um, work in a broader policy to include Russia and China and Africa, I can't answer that at the moment. Sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. How do we work in France then? I mean, do we, do we, I mean, you've already touched on sort of France's involvement in the Sahel. I mean, do we mm-hmm. consider France to be, you know, sort of a constructive partner that has the similar goals to the United States or do we just sort of consider them to be self-interested and, and sort of any initiative it takes is, is really for its own gain as opposed to, working with the United States? Um, so, so the relationship between France and the United States has been, uh, it's been at some times strained and at other times cooperative. Um, up to and through the 1990s, 
uh, France was by far the one foreign power in North Africa that dominated. Um, Algeria, uh, just to France's south, was once a part of France. It wasn't just a colony. It was part of France. So France has its, you know, for like, and I think I've mentioned this before when, you know, in other conversations with you that so France sort of still sees North Africa as its backyard. So, um, for example, to, to sort of, you know, demonstrate this one example of the strain between the United States and France and in North Africa, uh, Chad, before Idris Deby, um, Abre was in power and was very close to the United States. And it, the rumor has it is that, so France has, a, has had a permanent base in Chad for 30, 40 years. Um, and um, has, its forces there apparently stood aside as Abre was overthrown because um, they didn't like, the, that the United States was so close to Abre and had him under so much influence. So that's one example. Another example, well, so that's one example of how where they differed. One example where they were sort of in line with one another was in Algeria during the 1990s and the Civil War. The United States kind of just took a step back and allowed France to really take the lead in, on diplomatic efforts and other initiatives to try to quell the civil war, even though at one point they also, both of them, encouraged democratic governance and a democratic opening in Algeria. Another point where the U.S. and, and France have cooperated was with Operation Serval in 2012-2013 um, to uh, route jihadists from northern Mali. So they, they have at times worked together and have at times not worked so well together, um, at the moment, so the, well, and then there's also Libya. So the the French and the Brits um, in 2011 um, drove the initiative to, um, you know, get a UN Security Council resolution that would intervene in the Libya conflict um, for humanitarian purposes. At least that was the um, rationale given at the time. And so the United States supported France and Britain, and, or, you know, with the term that I think got coined, but as, as Obama having said, but I don't know that he actually said it, but the leading from behind concept that, um, you know, the Europeans and the French, you know, the French in particular were going to lead this effort toward intervention in Libya, but that the United States was going to support France and Britain in that effort. So um, now, after Serval and uh, now, Operation Barken, that's, which is the um, subsequent military mission in Mali that actually stretches you know, across the Sahel, Sahara region. Um, the G5 Sahel initiative is being led by France, now has um, you know, UN Security Council support, and the U.S. is supporting it. Um, uh, Gulf actors are supporting it, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So um, these are all these great, you know, the great powers that want to sort of have influence in North Africa. The one, actually, the one reason I didn't really get into, I think, why I don't focus on Russia and China in 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 this part of the world is because um, 
I think the bigger actors are the actors who more have more resources and more interest in um, driving political outcomes are golf actors, actually, um, than than would be Russia or China. Not to say that Russia isn't Russia and China aren't involved, but from from my perspective, Russia, China seems far more interested in in you know securing minerals and um then and you know building projects and creating positive relationships with governments for that sole purpose not for political power to have any kind of political influence gulf actors like you know united united arab emirates and saudi arabia they're actually interested in in having political influence and power for for the sake of that and not to say that there aren't other reasons too but but to get back to your question about working in France, um, the United States is supportive of the G5 Sahel Initiative. I'm sorry, yeah, sorry, the G5 Sahel Initiative and the uh, joint the joint force. So, um, you know, well, I think it remains to be seen what's what is going to come of the G5. It's still a bit experimental. It's only a few years old, even in concept. So it really remains to be seen how much impact it's actually going to have and what the U.S. role in that will be. But there is, there, I mean, they're, they're, they're clearly working together and, and cooperating on it. Interesting. So I want to maybe go back and, and sort of explore, you mentioned the GCC in uh-huh. North Africa. So is it, when we did talk about GCC involvement in North Africa, I mean, do we consider because we had that sort of diplomatic spat at, you know, at, towards the end of 2017, beginning of 2018 between Qatar and um, Saudi Arabia. So mm-hmm. when, when we examine GCC policy towards North Africa, is it, is it a reflection of the GCC or is it a, more of a reflection of the individual players and actors within that organization? It's definitely more reflective of the individual players um, like you mentioned, after the, the, the split between uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar, um, it, you know, I know I, there hasn't been much movement back toward re- resolving that conflict or resolving that split. Um, you know, the big argument or the big, uh, the main reason given by uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, is that Qatar has been a sponsor of state terrorism or a state sponsor of terrorism in the region and and that is could be true um, but uh, in Nor- with regard to North Africa so so it's just to sort of exemplify that how that has actually played out in Libya on the eastern side of the country the there's a general named, or now field marshal, Khalifa Hiftar. He is backed by the, by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, um, militarily, financially, and also Egypt as well. Um, on the other side of the country, there's a there's a government in Tripoli that is that the Saudis and the Emiratis will say is supported by Qatar. So there is a rift be, within Libya between clear rift between who the Saudis and the Emiratis support and who the Qataris allegedly support. So in that respect, it's actually playing out and it, by these individual actors in, 
in North Africa. It's definitely not the GCC as a whole. The GCC as a whole, I think, is a bit of a of a it's kind of like a myth. It's not really a thing. I mean, it is a thing in terms of an organization, but the way the different countries within the GCC operate is there, there's there's variety. I mean, it's not a monolith organization. So, it, yeah. But I guess what, what, what I would say is that particularly Qatar, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia are interested in influencing political outcomes in North Africa. So if we can, I want to maybe switch footing to examining sort of the Obama administration versus the Trump administration in terms of their involvement in Africa. Because I think I, I think the Trump administration is about a year old, and yet you've made the point earlier in the conversation that it doesn't seem like they're, you know, radically changing U.S. policy towards Africa. So I, I'm sort of curious if we can sort of dig deeper into this, which is, you know, it's, you know, in a general sense, let's start here. In a general sense, how would you describe Trump's sort of view towards Africa? Is it really... He's just sort of, you know, due to bureaucratic inertia, sort of, you know, implementing the Obama policies or has he been, you know, radically changing it or an attempt to radically change it, I should say? No, I think you're spot on. A lot of it is bureaucratic inertia. Um, You know, the the Pan-Sahel initiative was started in 2002. The Bush administration, uh, under the Bush administration, was was heightened under the Bush administration in 2006. The Obama administration, and AFRICOM was first begun under the, the Bush administration, carried on by the Obama administration. Um, and so now we have a policy that's been not only set in place, but developing over time. Um, you know, the main reason that the, the TSCTP was initiated in the first place was because of the, the perceived threat of terrorist actors in North Africa. And that was all formed around the global war on terror. Like that was the, that was the, the impetus for it. So, um, and it's carried on. So it's, <clears throat> I, I, it, the program and the, 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 the policy directives under the Obama administration that, that were in place when he left for the Trump administration, I think, still make sense. I mean, there are parts of it that the Trump administration might not want to follow through with, like economic development projects and, um, you know, the more, you know, the democracy promotion aspects of it. But, I mean, there are plenty of, of people in the Obama administration who didn't, didn't want to follow through with democracy promotion objectives either. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I think it's very much a, a case of, of bureaucratic inertia, but it's also helpful to the, 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 the Trump administration if, you know, if the message that the administration wants to give is that it's hard on, on security or hard on jihadist actors or, or is, you know, focused on, on counterterrorism objectives, all of the pieces are already in place for the administration to just carry on with. And that was all put in place by the Bush administration and carried on by the Obama administration. So I, you know, and, and with everything else, migration, and I mean, there are things that the Trump administration has already shown that it, it you know, a, a, where it has parted. And the, the first one is creating a travel ban uh, on Chad, which um, most North Africa specialists would sort of like raise an eyebrow at and wonder why, uh, because it is a key security partner. Um, 
So there's that. And then, um, you know, on the diplomatic level in Libya, we, you know, the Obama administration was very um, uh, concerned about maintaining a diplomatic presence and had a special envoy for Libya, for example, Jonathan Weiner. And now that that role has been completely eliminated. And um, President Trump made clear that, at least publicly, that there is no interest at all in maintaining any kind of role in Libya apart from fighting ISIS. So um, there are definite splits, um, but, you know, on, on most concrete measures, not much has changed. So, I mean, is it fair to characterize, it seems like, at the bureaucratic level, at the, you know, Department of State, DOD, it's just a continuation of policy that was started by the Bush administration, continued by Obama, and then continued by this administration. But at the same time, like, it, it seems like there's a lot of, like, con- not, I wouldn't say confusion, but chaos in, in coming out of the executive offices. I think you've already mentioned, um, sort of including Chad on the, the travel ban, but also sort of this emphasis of, emphasizing sort of the military part and de-emphasizing the diplomacy and engagement part. I mean, is that a, is that a fair characterization or is there a little more nuance to how the Trump administration is engaging Africa or North Africa, excuse me? No, I think that that would be a pretty fair assessment, um, that there, there is far less interest, um, and, and visible, um, you know, in terms of concrete output, that that the Trump administration is less interested in in diplomatic engagement um, than the than the Obama administration. I mean, it's it's. I mean, just generally speaking, not just with North Africa, the the most of the positions in the State Department have yet to be filled. Um, there's a you know what some would consider to be an active culling of the State Department um, um, and its capacities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, and then you know more of these rhetorical statements um, uh, with increased focus on counterterrorism and defeating ISIS and things like that. But you know, it, it's not hard to back up those you know sort of rhetorical statements with actual impact it, it's you, because of the policies that we already have in place from the previous two administrations so it, it it's 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 i i would say you could almost say that the trump administration is actually in a very good position to further its objectives to uh implement counterterrorism measures or um you know focus on hard security because of the 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 elements that have been put in place already for it. Um, not to say that, you know, decreasing diplomatic engagement and, you know, this is from an objective policy standpoint or from a, a policy analyst standpoint, I, I, I would say that having, you know, one, you know, disproportionate focus on counterterrorism objectives or hard security measures, um, um, at the expense of diplomatic engagement is never good because you have to have some sort of relationship or positive relationship with the governments and the people you're working with. And actually, just as I mean, I'm getting off topic here just slightly, but with any of these 
um, initiatives in North Africa, like the G5 or the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership, the I think the big thing that those these these programs are missing is that so much of what is determined in North Africa is at a very local level. And if trust in, and I'm telling you, like, it really has to be a genuine level of trust. If, if forces or, you know, diplomats or, you know, economic development, you know, people go into these different small towns and villages, if they're not able to build trust with local people, um, and uh, an, 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 a militant armed group is, you can throw as much money and as money as many weapons as you want, and as much training of special security or special forces of these governments as you want. It's not going to do any. It's not going to solve the problem, and could actually end up making the situation worse, and actually empowering the militant groups that they want to eliminate. Interesting. So sorry, mean- oh, off topic there, but it was sort of something that I wanted to touch on earlier that I skipped over and yeah. Well, then I want to maybe, you know, draw a circle around that. And, you know, when, when Chad is included on the travel ban, I mean, has that, you know, as a layman, you know, obviously that's, you know, you kind of shrug your shoulders, but as a sort of policy analyst, you know, how do you look at that? I mean, is it, has Chad's inclusion on the travel ban, has that sort of damaged the relationship or is it sort of recognized as, oh, it's just, you know, bluster? You know, what is what, what is the perception of, of being included on the travel ban from the perspective of um, cooperation with, with, you know, the government of Chad? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely harmed it. Um, I, I can't remember exactly, but there was something that happened within a month or two, um, maybe even sooner after the travel ban was um implemented that the the Chadian government had, you know, retaliated in some way. I can't remember the specifics of it, but, you know, I think it, you know, from, from, from my perspective, it was just so confusing. It didn't really make any sense to me, but then again, there, there's always a possibility that there's some sort of like high level intelligence that they have that I don't. Um, but you would think that there would be other um, steps taken uh, before doing something like that, if there were a threat, because Chad, um, during Operation Serval, and granted this was led by the French, but it, this French effort was directly in line with what, what with U.S. interests in the region. The U.S. was supportive of it, of the operation as well. Chad was absolutely pivotal to making that operation happen. Um, it wouldn't, I, you know, I, I don't know that, that it would have, that the operation would have had the kind of success that it did if, if Chad hadn't been involved. Um, you know, they sent a couple thousand soldiers, I believe, across the desert on motorcycles, you know, in a, within a few days' time um, to be able to support the mission. So, um, you know, I don't, I, I, I still can't understand it. I can't understand why why that decision was made. Um, but, you know, you would think that, at least I would think that, but before taking an action like that, you know, you, it might be useful to, to, to talk with the Chadian government or, or, or at least not rely on it as a, as, a, as a security partner. I mean, those two, two things are 
you know, th- those two things are in, in contradiction with one another. You know, we're relying on them as a, as a security partner. And by the way, you can't come to our country. You know, I would think it would be more, it would be more targeted. You know, it's, um, yeah, I wish I had an answer. I don't, it's confusing. <laughs> so I think we've, we've, we've sort of come to the, the end of the interview and, you know, as always, we, we always like to ask our guests, you know, leave us with something to think about, to chew on, to sort of pour over while, you know, until the next show, right? Um, um, so just yeah. leave us with something to think about. Oh, uh, something to think about. Um, with regard to North Africa or just about anything? <laughs> um, preferably North Africa, but I mean... <laughs> It's up to the the interviewee, so. (laughs) Um, It's North Africa. I I guess the thing that I would look out for is two things, actually. Two things to chew on. One would be Algeria to see what's going to happen this year. Um, You know, uh, Abdulaziz Bouteflika is getting a bit older, um, and he is not well. So, um, you know, things are sort of you know, happening in Algeria. That's the one this year, I would say, look at Algeria and what might happen. And the other one would be Libya's elections. Those are supposed to be coming up in June, July, August time frame, sometime this summer um, uh, to keep, to keep an eye on that. Um, and to, you know, maybe be a little bit more, um, what I say, like cautious about the, the positive impact that some people think that those elections will have. Awesome. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. All right. Thank you very much.